So Genesis chapter 6, one thing to right away, I'm going to start connecting the dots with the New Testament. Uh, the, the ark Noah is mentioned several times in the New Testament. It's mentioned in Hebrews 11. You don't have to turn there, but I'm just letting you know that in Hebrews 11, the writer of Hebrews points out that Noah moved with fear and prepared an ark for the saving of his house by the which he condemned the world and became the heir of the righteousness, which is by faith. So there's Noah in Hebrews 11. Um, Jesus said in Luke chapter 17, verse 26, and I want to preface before I read this, it's interesting to me that the same people who in the world outside the church who love, who really like Jesus, right, and who would say Jesus is this great moral teacher, what on earth? Okay. <laughs> it never does this. The same people who really like Jesus and would say that he's the greatest moral teacher who ever lived and you should listen to everything he says. Oh, but he was a person in history, right? He's not really God. Wink, wink. Right? Those same exact people. Sh oh, and, the, and those people um, would reject the Bible, right? They really should consider and perhaps don't know that Jesus so often in his teachings the one that people think they love, so often pointed to the Old Testament, and he was constantly affirming and confirming the events that occurred in the Old Testament. So we need to consider that when we consider who, who Jesus is and the authority of the Bible. So, uh, for example, in Luke 17, verse 26, Jesus said, as it was in the days of Noah, so it will also be in the days of the Son of Man. He's talking about the end times, the last days. They ate, they drank, they married wives, they were given in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark, and the flood came and destroyed them all. So here is Jesus affirming the events, the historical event of Noah's ark. And then we will see um, later on today that in 1 Peter, Peter actually refers to the ark. I don't know what's the This has never happened is my did my ear change shape over the week <laughs> I was deep drying this is okay I don't know it's so weird maybe uh, no. so uh and then in first Peter chapter three we'll go there again later but you can just take note here's Peter another New Testament figure and what Peter does is he really connects the dots in first Peter chapter three Peter says that the ark is an antitype, and that word means symbol. It was a symbol of water baptism. Okay, so just keep that in mind. Keep that in mind. The ark was a symbol of being saved. So just as Noah's family was saved from the waters, from the flood waters, baptism through water saves us. It saves our, our souls for all of eternity. It saves us for, from ourselves for right now. That's a really good thing. And so the ark was a symbol of baptism. So there's Peter. There's, so I'm connecting the dots with the Old Testament and the New Testament. Okay, so now let's go to our text, Genesis chapter 6, and let's pick up in verse 5. Genesis chapter 6, verse 5, reading from the New King James. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. It's important to know that what God was looking at was the intent and the thoughts of people's hearts. From the very beginning, God 
has been vitally concerned with our thoughts, the intents of our heart. That's been the root of the problem. And so when Jesus came on the scene, he realized the Pharisees would only look at behavior. They would only look at the outside, the behavior. And Jesus was so radical because he said, he said, no, it's about your thought and the intents of your heart. And he blasted the Pharisees because the intents and the thoughts of their heart were not pure. They were self-righteous. They were full of pride and arrogance and hypocrisy. So all the way back to Genesis, God, from the very beginning, has been concerned with the thoughts and the intents of the human heart, the parts of us that we can't see in each other and in ourselves a lot of times, right? So God recognized that, and then verse 6 says, the Lord was very sorry that he had made man on the earth. Ouch. And he was grieved in his heart. Verse 7, so the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping thing and birds of the air, for I am sorry that I have made man. Very troublesome verse, is it not? Um, here's how I, that verse causes a lot of, confusion and turmoil for people, and understandably so. I mean, what's, it looks like God's changed his mind, right? Like he regretted making us, you know? Um, here's, here's how I handle that. I think that when you isolate verses like that, number one, and then when you try to figure them out, you're really, it's kind of almost, could I say, an arrogance to try to, we, we do this thing where we try to climb into God's infinite mind, we as finite human beings, and figure him out, and figure out, and so what he, what it actually says in Isaiah, for instance, I think Isaiah 1, God's ways are higher than our ways, his thoughts are higher than our thoughts, and his ways are past finding out. Um, how, Romans 11.33 says, How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways. My ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. That's Isaiah 55.9. So there's one, there's two things we must do when we come to these verses that are so troubling. It's like, well, well what God is this? right? I think number one, we have to remember his ways, his ways are past finding out. When it says that God's ways and his thoughts are past finding out, it really means that, that we actually cannot always figure out God's thoughts and his ways. He's God, we are not. So that's one thing. But the other thing is we need to absolutely see everything through the lens of the cross. We have to see everything through the lens of God himself in Christ Jesus on the cross, reconciling the world to himself. Because when you look at everything through the lens of the cross, you can put these things that you don't understand, you can lay them aside and say, okay, someday I'm going to understand that. But I don't need to now. God reveals truth to us on a need-to-know basis. And what he knows that we need to know most of all is that he loved us enough and he loves us enough to give his very life for us. And so when you see everything through that lens, then it's like, well, okay, he obviously is the God of infinite love and mercy. And so 
these things in scripture that I don't quite understand, I'm going to leave alone for now. And, you ha- and here's another verse, 1 Peter 3.20 says, When once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. Scholars believe it took Noah roughly a year-ish to build the ark. What's that? A hundred years. Oh, thank you. I, I, I have a hundred written. I meant to say a hundred. Thank you for telling me now and not on the way home today because that's like the worst thing. Like, I really said that. A hundred years. So a hundred years is a while. It, I think, is enough time, right, for people to decide they're going to repent, right? They're going to repent from their wicked ways. It says the earth was filled with violence. So God gave, God's long-suffering gave people a hundred years. I actually wrote roughly a year, and I meant to say a hundred years. God gave people, you know, a while to, to repent. He's, and if you look in the Old Testament, as we will see, he's always long-suffering and waiting patiently for centuries sometimes for his people to turn and come to him. And, and you have to filter these verses through... Um, uh, verses like 2 Peter 3, 9, God is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish. Um, so anyway, there's the lens through which we look at these difficult verses. But I'm going to move on from that for the sake of time. So verse 8 says, um, uh, but, so God's decided he's going to destroy man from the face of the earth. And verse 8 says, but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. God is, by default, his, his nature is grace, and he is always looking for someone to show his grace to. His grace abounds to anyone who wants it. It's not like there's anyone that God says, eh, you don't get my grace. You do. You don't. His, his grace is so abundant, and he's, he's so willing and ready. Again, look at it through the cross. He's so eager to pour out his grace. But no one wanted it in the days of Noah. No one wanted it. It was an active refusal of the grace of God. Imagine that. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. He, the, the, the precepts that had been passed on to him, he was the 10th generation from Adam. He still had that in his heart. So he found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And so... Uh, let's move on. Um, it gives the genealogy. It says the earth was filled with violence in verse 11. Verse 9, it says, this is the genealogy of Noah. Noah was a just man, perfect in his generations. Noah walked with God. Just want to take a moment to talk about that word perfect, the literal Translation in the original Hebrew is blameless. And there's this truth, there's this principle in Scripture that it's important for us to note. Because you look at that and you say, well, Noah was perfect. Well, wow, that was the requirement to be saved in the ark. And you're telling me the ark is symbolic of baptism. So if I'm not perfect, first of all, I'm not going to find grace in the eyes of the Lord and be saved. Like Noah was, it sounds like Noah was perfect, so therefore he found grace in God's sight and God saved him in the ark. No, if you understand the Hebrew, if you understand the actual text, that word is blameless. And I just want to tell you real quick, here's a little mini teaching within a teaching. There's a difference in scripture. Sometime do a study on the differences between blameless, being blameless and faultless. 
Blameless are the things you can control. It's the places you go, the people you see, and the things that you do. Noah was on top of that stuff. He decided, I want to live my life blamelessly before God. Those are the things that you can do something about. Faultless, our faults, our human nature, our natural bent toward, oh, I don't know, losing it sometimes. Anyone lost it lately? Anyone ever get discouraged by your faults? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. See, your faults, that's what only God can take care of. That's, that's what you have to leave to God and trust him. And as you seek him, see, your part is to just stay close to him and let him love you to wholeness. And as you do that, he, there's a verse that says in Jude, did I write it down? He will present uh, Jude one twenty one. Listen to this verse about faultless. Now unto him, Jude one twenty four. Jude one twenty four. unto him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. Isn't that comforting? He is going to present you and I someday faultless before his presence with exceeding joy. So Philippians 2.14 says, do everything without complaining so that you may become blameless and pure. My kids had to sing this when they were little. I'm sure they loved it. You guys want to sing that right now? Do ev- No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Do everything. The rest of you are like, what is she talking about? <laughs> but it says, do everything without complaining or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure. Okay, complaining, arguing, yeah, those are things that, things that we can control. We can decide, I'm, I'm going to shut my mouth. So again, Noah was blameless. He, he was on top of the things, the behaviors that he could say no to. And that's why he found, he found grace in God's sight. He just decided, I want to turn my life around and walk in a different direction. Did he have faults? Oh, yeah. He's actually drunk the next time you hear about him. I mean, and see, that's a behavior. That's where he actually was not blameless. But did he repent? Yes, I believe so. But those faults, those, that bent toward, toward self-centered living, you know, there, that's, he found grace because he was not a perfect person. He, he was not a person without faults. So I wanted to make a note of that. All right, let's move along. along. We really need, need to move along. So God said to Noah, the end of all flesh has come before me. The earth is filled with violence. So he gives them. Now I'm going to just give some facts, and we're going to zoom forward and get to my main point today. Um, Just some facts about Noah's life in the ark. He had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. They went into the ark with their wives, Noah's wife, and his three sons' wives. A few fun facts. The ark was 450 feet long by 75 feet wide, 45 feet high. It had a capacity that exceeded that of 500 railroad stock cars. Took over 100 years to build. There it is. It rained for 40 days. Noah and his family spent over a year in the ark. And it finally, when the water settled, it finally landed on Mount Aramat. Settled on Mount Ararat, which is modern-day Armenia, that region of the world. Okay. Let's see what happens here. Let's pick up the story. You can imagine, or maybe you can't. I looked it up. 
what was it like on the ark? <laughs> I, I just looked up, you know, it's fun to do, a, because there's all kinds of things you wouldn't think about. I mean, we already kind of can figure out that it was really crowded, probably smelly, you know. It was dark. I think it speaks of one window and a roof. But things you don't think about, the seasickness, not just of the humans, but the animals, the constant mucking of the stalls and pitching manure overboard and, and births happening. I'm thousands of species, thousands of species crowded into, you know the Titanic was three times the size of the ark? And you've got every species times two represented in this dark, stifling, smelly, disgusting place, and they're in there for over a year. Uh, that's probably not even scratching the surface of what li life was like on the ark. So we get to the end of this, and the waters are receding. And in chapter 8, verse 7, it says, uh, um, well, let's go to chapter 8, verse 6. It says, it came to pass at the end of 40 days that Noah opened the window of the ark which he had made. Now, this is after it had been up. Uh, the water, this is not the 40 days of rain, but this is, you know, after like a year, you know, and so he opens the, the um, window of the ark. It says the window. It doesn't say one of the windows. Wow. I think they would have had to have some kind of therapy for a while. <laughs> like, Hopefully there was a program for ARC PSD, PTSD, <laughs> you know. So it says, he opened the window of the ark which he had made. And verse 7 says, he sent out a raven which kept going to and fro until the waters had dried up from the earth. Then verse 8 says, he sent himself, he also sent out a dove to see if the waters had receded from the face of the ground. But the dove found no resting place for the sole of her foot, and she returned into the ark to him, for the waters were on the face of the whole earth. So he put out his hand and took her and drew her into the ark himself. And he waited another seven days again, and he sent the dove out from the ark. Then the dove came to him in the evening, and behold, a freshly plucked olive leaf was in her mouth, and no one knew that the waters had receded from the earth. Just want to think about that. Noah knew that the waters had receded from the earth. He knew. He knew, without a doubt. It's safe to go out now. It'd probably be a good idea to get my family out of here. He knew the waters had receded. He knew it was time to leave the ark. He knew that season of his life had come to an end, and it was time to move on. And the proof was this dove. Who does the dove represent in Scripture? The dove, the Holy Spirit. When the Holy Spirit came upon Jesus to initiate, to inaugurate his, his ministry, he came in the form of a dove at Jesus' baptism. So this dove, which in Scripture represents the Holy Spirit, is bringing back a leaf, letting no one know it's time. It's time. The land is drying up. It's time to get out. 
Verse 12 says, so he waited yet another seven days and sent out the dove, which did not return to him again anymore. It's as though the dove is saying, look, I'm going on. Y'all can stay in here, but I'm not going back in this place. You can follow me or not, right? Verse 13 says, it came to pass in the 601st year, that's Noah's age, in the first month, the first day of the month, the waters were dried up, and Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and indeed the surface of the ground was dry. And in the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth was dried, and then God spoke to Noah, saying, verse 16, go out of the ark. You and your wife, your sons, and your sons' wives with you. God himself had sovereignly closed the door. He had brought them in and brought all the animals in and sovereignly closed the door. Because remember, the ark represents salvation. It, the whole flood, it represents baptism. Salvation is a, a work of God. We cannot save ourselves. God himself is the only one who can close the door on our past and on sin in our life. we got to agree to go in. Like Moses, I, oh, Noah had to agree to walk into the ark, but God himself shut the door. Now here we see Noah, and he sees that it's a good time to get out of there. He sees that the land has dried up. He opens the roof. He sees it, and God is telling him, Go out of the ark. Sometimes, actually a lot of times, actually I think probably all the time, probably every time, God tells you and he tells me when it's time to move on. When it's time to move on from the past, to leave our past behind, to leave behind old ways of living, old ways of thinking, old ways of doing. 1 Corinthians 13 says, when I was a child, I spoke as a child, I thought as a child, I understood as a child, but when I became a man, I put away childish things. It's something we all want, I think. Like, I think most of us want to leave the childish way of thinking and living and behaving and speaking. We want to leave that behind. And God will agree. It's like we know. It's like we see. We can look outside of our existence, our pitiful, dark, depressing existence. We can look out this window and we can see, oh, I, I want to be out there. That's where I'm supposed to be. I'm not supposed to stay here in this place. And God will say, yeah, get out. It's okay. Come on, get out. It's time to get out. It's it's interesting to me that, and, and I don't know, I don't want to read too much into this, but God had to tell Noah to get out of the ark. And, and you know, it's just that Noah, he obeyed God. He was blameless. He took his orders from God, and he, he didn't walk ahead of God, you know. But God is clearly telling him it's time to get out of this place that you have been. Get out of the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. See, because when we make the choice to get out of the ark that has been a part of our life, our families will follow. They will, even in time, if we persevere in prayer, but if we take the lead and say, though none go with me, still I will follow. I'm going to go out Bring out with you every living thing of all flesh that is with you, the birds and the cattle 
So God gives Noah two commands. First of all, he tells him to get out of the ark. And the second thing he tells him, at the end of verse 17, he says, and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. See, God didn't just save you. He didn't just save me to stay in this. Was Noah rescued? Yeah. He didn't die. His family didn't die. They didn't drown in the flood. But God did not just save you and your family to rescue you from an eternal existence in hell without him. He saved you to come out of your now that you are living that has kept you from being fruitful and multiplying yourself as a follower of Christ. That's what he saved you for. He never intended Noah and his family to stay in that ark for the rest of their lives. He said, get out of the ark. It's time to come out. It's old in here. It's got old. The darkness got old yesterday. The oppression got old yesterday. It's so last year. And God is saying, the door is open. I'm making a way for you to go out. And once you come out, you have to understand it is to be fruitful and to multiply. I have work for you to do, and it's a good and fulfilling work. It's the work of being spiritually fruitful in the kingdom of God, growing in the fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, goodness, kindness, patience, joy, that spiritual fruit, but also the, the fruit of, of um, uh, reproducing yourself spiritually that, Sue, you are making more disciples, more followers of Jesus. I look at this and I think of Hebrews 6, verses 1 and 2. It says, Therefore, leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ, let us go on to perfection. That means completion. Maturity is what it means. Not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of the doctrine of baptisms, of laying on of hands, resurrection from the dead, of eternal judgment. These are all the basic things that accompany salvation. The writer of the Hebrews is saying it's time to move on from that and start producing fruit, go on to spiritual maturity. Get out of the ark. The ark was the place of salvation, initial salvation for Noah and his family. The message is clear. Time to move on from that place. It's time to grow, time to mature, time to reproduce, time to bear fruit. Be fruitful and multiply. So much of scripture is thematic around multiplication and fruitfulness, being fruitful, sowing and reaping spiritually. John 15, Jesus spends an entire portion of scripture basically in John 15 saying, if, you're, if you don't stay connected with me, you'll never bear fruit. You will never grow in spiritual maturity. You will never move on if you don't. You're, you're, you're the branch that's, and I'm the vine. And if the branch becomes disconnected from the vine, there will never be any fruit on that branch. That's the message of John 15. It's the message of Genesis 6. Come on out of there now. It's time to be fruitful. It's time to really stay connected to that vine. 
Jesus Christ who saved you in the first place, but not to stay where you are. He had, to, he had to follow the dove, the Holy Spirit's leading, who said it's time to get out of the ark. And then I want to end on this thought today. In chapter 8, verse 20, and please on your own read these, these chapters if you really want to, you know, the nuts and if you want to flesh out this, all the details of the story in Genesis 6, 7, and 8. But I want to end here on, on in chapter 8, what does Noah do when he comes out of the ark? Chapter 8, verse 20, it says, Noah built an altar to the Lord. He comes out, right? He comes out of the ark with, his, with all the animals in the family. It says, verse 18, he went out, his sons and his wives, his, his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. Verse 20 says, Noah built an altar to the Lord. He took of every clean animal and of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. Verse 21 says, the Lord smelled a soothing aroma, and the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground for man's sake. Although the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth, nor will I again destroy every living thing as I have done. Why did Noah need to do that? Why did he feel the need to take those extra animals he had brought into the ark for the very purpose of sacrifice? Why did he do that? Why did he start this brand new life outside the ark before he got started with a new life, before he even drove his tent stakes into the ground? Why did he start with, an, with an, a sacrifice? So I think the message here is that we cannot possibly ever for a second think that we can live this new life becoming fruitful without constantly knowing that it's all Jesus' sacrifice that made it possible. The same sacrifice on the cross that made it possible for you to be saved for all of eternity is the same sacrifice that makes it possible for you to live a fruitful life. Because every single day, you and I have to get up and say what Romans 12:1 says. Lord, I present my body a living sacrifice to you. Today might be hard. I don't know who's going to say what to me, and I don't know what I'm going to say to somebody. And I just give myself to you as a sacrifice. Please take me. Please, Lord, Holy Spirit, anoint me. Help these lips. Help these ears. Help these hands and feet. Help me to live for you. I give my life to you as a living sacrifice. But why can we do that? Because we look first to the ultimate sacrifice, the one who gave himself for us, for you and me. Noah, in offering this sacrifice, was pointing, and here's the big connecting of the dots today. He's pointing to the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. This is not a fruitfulness that results from our own self-effort and striving and trying, and working so hard every day to make God happy by producing something. No, that sacrifice that Noah offered was a way of saying, it's only by your sacrifice, Jesus, you're giving yourself to me. Knowing that I am loved that much, that's going to fuel my work, your love for me on the cross.
your sacrifice for me. Hebrews 9.12 says, Not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. And finally, 2 Corinthians 2.14 2 Corinthians 2.14, my closing verse. Now thanks be to God, who always leads us in triumph in Christ, and through us diffuses the fragrance of his knowledge in every place. Remember, God smelled that soothing aroma from Noah's sacrifice. What soothing aroma does he smell today from your life and from my life? When God calls us out and we finally walk out of those dark, awful places we've been in for way too long, and we thank God and we say, thank you for bringing me out, it's an aroma. He smells. It's a beautiful, wonderful thing worship is and praise and thanksgiving is. And 2 Corinthians 2.15 says, For we are to God the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one, we are the aroma of death leading to death, and to the other, the aroma of life leading to life. There was a line we sang in the song this morning, something about walking out of the grave. What's that line? What's that? If you left the grave behind, so will I. If Noah left the ark behind, so will I. If Jesus left the grave behind, so will I. It's the dove flying before me saying, come on. The Holy Spirit is leading some of you this morning as I close. The Holy Spirit is that, like that dove for you saying, come on. It's time to get out of that place. That place you've been in for way too long. Yeah, God actually, God actually himself was there with you. He saw you walking into that. And you know what? He saved you in his mercy and grace. But now it's time to move on. It's time to come out into a rich place of, of spiritual reproduction and fruitfulness. And I believe the Holy Spirit is saying today, are you coming out? You coming out of the ark? It's time to walk out. It's time to walk out to a place of freedom, to a place where you are not constantly smelling your past in that dark place, constantly dealing with it, the hard work and heavy labor of having to exist with your past, God is saying, no, it's time to be done. Time to come on out of the ark now. I've got things for you to do, and you cannot do it if you're still stuck in that place. You just can't. Can we bow our heads and pray this morning? Father God, as I have meditated in this word this week, I have heard your voice, Holy Spirit. 
like that dove saying, I am extending the olive leaf. I am, I am letting people know. I am letting individuals know. I want them out. I want them out. God has opened the door. He's opened the window. He's shown you there is light to enjoy. There is a fresh new life awaiting for you. There is freedom, abundant freedom. He has a purpose and a calling for your life. And if you will be willing to come out of the place where you are, you will find out what it is, but you can't know what it is as long as you're stuck in there. God is saying this morning, come out of the ark. It's time to come out. So, Father, I pray in the name of Jesus, that those you are speaking to this morning, for whatever specifically this word means for them, that they would see that it is <laughs> absolutely your heart and your desire that they not spend one more day, not even another minute, and that place they've been for way too long. I pray that they would hear your voice calling, come out, come out. I have so much for you. Come out and enjoy my love, my freedom, my peace. Leave the past behind. If that's you, I'm just going to give you another minute just to make that confession before the Lord today. Yes, I hear you, and I'm coming out. Let it be so, in Jesus' name I pray. Let it be so. Amen. You think Noah or his wife or any of his sons ever went back to that ark and said, "Yeah." I really miss this. <laughs> Don't do that. Don't do that. Because we do. People do. Don't do it. Amen. Amen. You are dismissed. Have a wonderful week. And we will see you uh, Wednesday. We have prayer meeting here at 630, prayer and worship. God bless.